0: The Knowledgeable Provider podcast is intended primarily to entertain, also to inform, but it is not a substitute for actual medical training and should not be used by anyone to diagnose or treat any medical condition in themselves or others. If you need medical advice, please make an appointment to see your own knowledgeable medical provider. The opinions expressed by me and anyone else who happens to appear on the podcast are solely those of the people expressing them and are not necessarily representative of any other entities. Other than the lunches at the office, I do not receive any sort of compensation from pharmaceutical or medical device companies, and I have no other relevant financial disclosures. Look, this is all for fun, okay? Don't sue me. All right, on with the show. There's this adage in journalism called Betridge's Law of Headlines. It's been referred to as other things over the years, but that seems like the current terminology. And Betridge's Law says that any headline that ends in a question mark can be answered by the word no. The thought being that if whoever wrote the article was confident that the answer was yes, then they would have presented it as an assertion rather than a question. The Wikipedia article on this goes on to say that the adage does not apply to questions that are more open ended than just strict yes no questions. So, can this question? are stimulant laxatives safe to use for long-term treatment of constipation be answered with a simple no? I guess this is one of those more open-ended situations. Because as far as I can tell, like so many other things in medicine, the answer to this question is really not that clear at all. What started me thinking about this is a note that I got from one of our local gastroenterologists recently. I was reading through his regular office note on a patient. And with the GI notes in general from most of the gastroenterologists, We tend to get these long multi-page documents that have all this boilerplate template stuff in it that you sort of have to wade through to get to the bottom line of what you need to know, which is what did you find in the colonoscopy or the EGD and when do they need to have another one? That's really all I need to know. Or maybe what medicines have you started the patient on? In fact, it seems like in our area, they all actually use the same software. So most of these GI notes look exactly the same, but not this particular gastroenterologist. His notes are usually incredibly brief to the point, sometimes comically so, like colonoscopy equals good, repeat in 10 years. And I'm exaggerating there, but not by much. But in this one patient's note I was reading, there was a longer sentence that caught my eye, and I'm paraphrasing a little bit, but essentially what it said was that this patient should be using stimulant laxatives all the time because that has not been shown to be problematic. And obviously that caught my attention because I've always learned That if you use stimulant laxatives all the time, they will affect the nerves that innervate the colon and cause a situation where the colon won't act on its own anymore, where peristalsis is impaired, and put you in a situation where you have to take a stimulant laxative to have a bowel movement forever and ever, amen. As soon as I read the note, I asked the other nurse practitioner that I worked with about it. She had the same thought that I did. So I thought, okay, there must be some new study that came out that's looking at this, because this is obviously new information that I did not know. So I set about trying to find out where this came from. So I click over to Google, search for something along the lines of, are stimulant laxatives safe to use? And the results you get back from that initial search are pretty consistent. The very first result on the search query, dangers of stimulant laxatives, is an article from Harvard Health dated June 30th of this year, 2023. Quote, if you take stimulant laxatives too often, you could become dependent on them to have a bowel movement at all possibly because the bowel has stopped functioning normally, unquote. Okay, scrolling down. Cornell Health has an article that says the same thing. WebMD's article about the situation says the same thing. So then I go to the nursing pharmacology textbook that we use at Calhoun, and it says the same thing. So, okay, this is still the party line about stimulant laxatives. Not for long-term use. They cause harm to the colon. Seems pretty straightforward. But that still leaves me wondering, where did this come from and why? Did this gastroenterologist take the time to write this out in this note? So then I go to Up to Date, look up the article on management of chronic constipation, and lo and behold, at the end of the paragraph on stimulant laxatives, I find this jewel. Quote, there is no convincing evidence that chronic use of stimulant laxatives causes structural or functional impairment of the colon, nor does it increase the risk for colorectal cancer or other tumors, unquote. So now I'm intrigued. Is it going to turn out that this is one of those things that we believe in medicine for no apparent reason? The two articles that are cited at the end of that sentence in the up-to-date article are one by Dr. Wald from the Journal of Clinical Gastroenterology from 2003, and a second article which also lists Dr. Wald as one of the authors from the American Journal of Gastroenterology 2005, both of which say pretty much the same thing, that our belief in the long-term harms of stimulant laxatives are not evidence-based and that this is something that probably needs to be studied more. So now I'm off, down the rabbit hole, trying to find the answer to this question. I was very curious to know where the whole notion of harm from stimulant laxatives came from in the first place, if it's not evidence-based. The oldest article I could find was written in 1968 by Barbara Smith out of St. Bartholomew's Hospital in London. This was published in Gut. And the title of the article is Effective Irritant Purgatives on the Myenteric Plexus in Man and the Mouse. It seems like Dr. Smith did some experiments looking at the effects of stimulant laxatives, including senna, on the colons of mice. And it seems like what she found is that when they gave these mice these large doses of these laxatives for a long time and then took their colons out, the group of nerves that controls the colon looked very much like the nerves of colons that had been exposed to known toxic agents. The human part of the study is an examination of one single colon from a patient who was known to be taking these sorts of laxatives for over 40 years. And so they found some similar changes in the nerves around the colon. There's some different descriptions about the texture of the colon itself, what the inside of it looked like. The article's really well summarized just in a couple of sentences here, quote, myenteric plexus damage is described in a patient with the cathartic syndrome. Damage to the myenteric plexus was produced in mice by the administration of syrup of Senna. It is suggested that Senna acts pharmacologically by its effect on myenteric neurons and if taken long enough, may damage them, unquote. So really, it seems like what they found here was a possible correlation between long-term laxative use and damage to the nerves controlling the colon in some mice and one single human patient. There's another article by Dr. Smith that shows up in the Proceedings of the Royal Society of Medicine in March of 1972 called Pathology of Cathartic Colon. This one looking at the colon of, quote, 12 purgative addicts, unquote, most of whom have been taking these purgatives for 30 to 40 years, and pretty much the same description as the previous article about how the nerves around the colon look and how the colon itself look, then the article starts talking about a couple of different kinds of stimulant laxatives. It says, quote, it is apparent that the vegetable products of cascara and senna, which have been in use for centuries, are quite safe. People dying from purgative addiction die from the metabolic side effects, not anthraquinone poisoning, uh, Anthraquinone refers to the chemical structure of senna as well as a bunch of other medications and industrial chemicals and pesticides, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So that's where that word comes from. The article concludes by saying, quote, the vegetable laxatives of known safety are considered by the pharmaceutical industry to be too cheap and simple. Unquote. "A big pharma. Should have known. Quote, the anthraquinone derivatives are now being marketed as pure substances, often together with other drugs given to enhance their absorption. As expected, since they are cell poisons, this makes them much more toxic, unquote. It says for a couple of the products that are on the market, the the lethal dose, which was extrapolated from animal experiments, is only eight times the recommended dose. So the conclusion is that if you take a lot more than you're supposed to, it could hurt you. So fast forward now to the early 2000s, 2010s, seems like this group of studies popped up where people started questioning this. The authors that show up most frequently when you start looking for these articles are Dr. Wald and then a Dr. Mueller listener, Mueller or Mueller hyphen listener. And these are the studies that start to go, hey, wait a minute. We don't know that there was a causative relationship here and there's really no good research that shows whether or not this is an issue. A summary of one of these articles done by Dr. Darren Brenner that appears in Gastroenterology in 2011 says that they used a technique called silver staining in those studies from the 60s and 70s and that more modern techniques have since been used and have not confirmed the same results. That comment about the inside of the colon appearing brown was thought to be a precursor of colorectal cancer, but prospective analyses conducted since then have failed to support that theory as well. Regarding the whole cathartic colon idea, There is one study that shows that those changes occurred in the colon in people who took these agents more than three times a week for at least a year. Those changes were seen apparently on radiographs, x-rays, were not necessarily correlated with any physical symptoms and went away after the participants stopped taking the medications. Uh, And that was a study cited from the Journal of Clinical Gastroenterology in 1998 and a second one from Diseases of the Colon and Rectum from 1983. So it seems like my local gastroenterologist was correct in his note that there really is no solid evidence that stimulant laxatives are harmful. And it's so interesting to me that something like this can persist for so long in medicine. And really, I suppose you'd always rather err on the side of caution. But it seems like by now we would have figured out The answer to the question of whether or not something that people have been using apparently for centuries for constipation is okay to keep using or not. I mean, it's been like 70 years since those mouse colon studies were done in London. So now I'm very curious to know why. Why hasn't there been more research? Why don't we know the answer to this question for sure? And why is Dr. Arnold Wald almost the only person who seems to be thinking about this? Or at least he was 20 something years ago. Out of curiosity, I went back to the up-to-date article to see who wrote that. You want to guess who it was? That would be Dr. Arnold Wald. This man is like standing on a wall, trying to hold back the flood of misconceptions about stimulant laxative use. From all the rest of us who can't handle the truth. seems like Dr. Wald's still around. He's listed as a faculty member in the Division of Gastroenterology and Hepatology in the Department of Medicine at the University of Wisconsin. So I thought I'd just reach out to Dr. Wald and see what he has to say about this whole situation. I emailed Dr. Wald and got a response back pretty quickly within 24 hours. Here's what the man himself has to say. Quote, Dear Jody, I remain puzzled as to why the issue of safety and effectiveness of long-term stimulant laxatives is still being questioned. Their safety and efficacy for short-term use appears to be unquestioned. Certainly, they can be abused, but this is a behavioral issue. Chocolate can be abused, but eaten in normal amounts, there is no problem. This remains a holdover of the misconceptions of certain laxatives promulgated 50 to 60 years ago and never substantiated. My advice to patients with constipation? Used properly, they are effective, inexpensive, and safe. As with all such agents, they are not for everyone and there are alternatives if they prove unsatisfactory. Unquote. So there you have it. If Dr. Wald himself remains puzzled, what chance do the rest of us mere mortals have? Seems that it's one of those gray areas we all love, like 99.999% of medicine. I was trying to think of parallel situations in medicine where we absolutely don't do something because we learned it's wrong or we learned it's bad, even though we don't really know that for sure. Right now, maybe the situation with GLP-1 agonists and type 1 diabetics or doax for people who have artificial heart valves. Both situations where we avoid them just because we don't have the data yet to know whether or not it's okay. Actually, within the GI realm, you have the whole situation with the diverticulosis diet. And we all kind of grew up thinking that you have to tell people not to eat popcorn and seeds and nuts and all that. And then suddenly the recommendation changed. Nope, that's not true anymore. Doesn't matter. So anyway, here we are back at this basic question. What do we tell patients about using stimulant laxatives? After learning about all this, I think I'm going to go with something more like Dr. Wald's advice. Use them if you need them, but don't abuse them. Hopefully someday we'll have some actual evidence to either back that up or refute it. If any new information does come along, I'll be sure to update. While we're at it, I thought I'd review the new clinical practice guideline from the American Gastroenterological Association and American College of Gastroenterology for Pharmacological Management of Chronic Idiopathic Constipation. This just came out in June of 2023. I did look through the complete list of authors hoping to see you-know-who, but no luck this time. The guideline boils down to 10 recommendations that I'll go through, and of course, I'll put a link to the full guideline article in the show notes. The first recommendation has to do with fiber. They do recommend the use of fiber supplementation. That's a conditional recommendation with low certainty of evidence. Important considerations for that one, we have to take into consideration what their total fiber intake is, not just from supplements, but also from what they're getting in their diet. It's fine to use fiber supplements as a first-line treatment for chronic idiopathic constipation, especially in people who don't get a lot of fiber in their dietary intake. Of the supplements they evaluated, only psyllium appeared to be effective. We should be encouraging adequate hydration in our patients who are using fiber, and we should warn them about the commonly observed side effect of flatulence that comes along with using fiber supplements. Recommendation two involves osmotic laxatives. The recommendation is to use polyethylene glycol. That's a strong recommendation with moderate certainty of evidence that polyethylene glycol can be used either after the initial trial of fiber supplementation or in conjunction with it. They did note a durable response to polyethylene glycol over a period of six months, and side effects there include abdominal distension, loose stool flatulence, and nausea. Third recommendation, also under the category of osmotic laxatives, they do recommend the use of magnesium oxide. This is a conditional recommendation with very low certainty of evidence. The trials that they looked at here were conducted for four weeks, although they think it's probably appropriate to use this longer term. They suggest starting at a low dose and then increasing later if necessary, and magnesium oxide should be avoided in patients with renal insufficiency because there is a higher risk of hypermagnesemia. Fourth recommendation, in adults with chronic idiopathic constipation who fail or are intolerant to over-the-counter therapies, they suggest using lactulose, conditional recommendation with very low certainty of evidence. And we have to remember to warn people that bloating and flatulence are dose-dependent and common side effects. The next two recommendations involve the stimulant laxatives. They recommend the use of bisacodyl or sodium picosulfate as short-term or rescue therapy. Here's the key statement about what we've been talking about. Short-term use is defined as daily use for four weeks or less. While long-term use is probably appropriate, data are needed to better understand tolerance and side effects. Most common side effects with these are abdominal pain, cramping, and diarrhea, and they suggest starting these at a lower dose and increasing as tolerated. This is actually a strong recommendation with moderate certainty of evidence. Recommendation six, they suggest the use of Senna, with the same caveat here that the trials were conducted for four weeks and that longer-term use is probably appropriate. They noted that in the trials they looked at, the dose that was evaluated was actually higher than the commonly used dose in clinical practice. So, of course, they suggest starting in a lower dose and increasing it if needed. At higher doses, you do start to see some abdominal pain and cramping with the Senna. This is a conditional recommendation with low certainty of evidence. So, as per current guidelines, if you're going to recommend a stimulant laxative, you'd want to start with bisacodyl or sodium picosulfate, and as a secondary option, you could consider Senna. The next three recommendations involve secretagogues for adults with chronic idiopathic constipation who do not respond to over-the-counter agents. They suggest the use of lubiprostone. This is a conditional recommendation with low certainty of evidence. The lubiprostone can be used as a replacement or as an adjunct to the over-the-counter agents. Again, the trials they looked at, the treatment duration was four weeks, but there's not a known limit to its use. These may cause some nausea. However, it seems like the risk of nausea is dose-dependent, and if the medication is taken with food and water, it seems to lower that risk. Recommendation eight is for linaclotide. Also can be used as a replacement or an adjunct to the over-the-counter medications. Here the duration of treatment in the trials they looked at was 12 weeks, but again there's no known limit to its use. And diarrhea was the big side effect that actually led people to stop the treatment. That's a strong recommendation with moderate certainty of evidence. The next recommendation is for placanitide. Also a strong recommendation with moderate certainty of evidence. Can also be used as a replacement or an adjunct for over-the-counter stuff. The same caveats and considerations that applied to the linaclitide also applied to the placanitide. The final recommendation is for the 5-HT4 agonist, that's a serotonin receptor agonist, Prucalopride. Strong recommendation with moderate certainty of evidence. In the trials they looked at, the duration of treatment was between 4 and 24 weeks, but again, there's no known limit to its length of use. Can also be used as a replacement or adjunct to over-the-counter agents. Side effects here include headache, abdominal pain, nausea, and diarrhea. Of course, the full guideline goes into a lot more detail about their methods and studies they looked at, etc. So if you're interested in that, there's a link in the show notes. Check it out. They also have a nice flowchart that's a clinical decision support tool starting at the top with chronic idiopathic constipation. First, we want to know if they have any alarm features like GI bleeding, anemia, or weight loss. If so, then we need to send them for diagnostic testing. If they don't have any of those alarm features, we need to try increasing their fiber intake. If that doesn't work, we add or switch to osmotic laxatives. That would be polyethylene glycol, magnesium oxide, and or lactulose. If we don't get a good response there, then we add the stimulant laxatives. Of course, ideally just as short-term or rescue therapy, but perhaps they could be used for longer if needed. And again, those options are the bisacodyl, sodium picosulfate, and senna. Another option at this point is to consider sending them for evaluation for pelvic floor dysfunction. Those tests include anal rectal manometry, balloon expulsion testing, or defecography. If results of those tests are abnormal, then the patient goes for pelvic floor physical therapy or anorectal biofeedback. Back on the medication side, if we need more medication options, whether or not we've tried the stimulant laxatives, then we move to our secretagogues. Those would be the lubiprostone, linaclotide, placanotide. And that prokinetic serotonin receptor agonist, the prucalopride. those two classes can be used either by themselves or in combination with each other. That's actually a nice simple flowchart if you need a quick reference for what the next step would be in managing a patient with chronic idiopathic constipation. This guideline seems like it's really only intended for adult patients with chronic idiopathic constipation. It doesn't seem like they have a similar guideline specifically for pediatric patients, I was looking around for a similar guideline for children, and the most useful thing I came across was an article in American Family Physician from July of 2014 that has some pretty clear recommendations and some similar clinical decision making tools. So I'll add the link to that in the show notes as well. It looks like there's really not much difference as far as medications that would be used and the order you would use them in. Polyethylene glycol seems like it's really preferred over everything else, but you still have the same options. Of course, they put a lot of emphasis on dietary modification, and there's a whole separate section on disimpaction for children. So if you're working with kids in this situation, this may be a better resource for you to look over. So I hope this is helpful for anyone who's out there managing chronic constipation. Sure, there's a great Mm -hmm. joke that I'm missing here about going with the flow or some such, but I'll pretend like I have a little class and leave it alone. that does it for this episode of Knowledgeable Provider. I'm your host, Jody Marks. Thank you so much for listening. Don't forget to like or subscribe or follow and leave a nice five-star review. And as always, stay safe, take care of yourself, and take care of your patients, in that order. The people that are 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 The people that